Welcome to a recording of a Latrobe Asia public event. My name is Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. This is The Relentless Invention of Modern India, recorded at the State Library of Victoria on the 12th of September 2017. India is a country of which it is almost impossible to speak in hyperbolic terms. Every five years it holds the biggest election in human history. Even though the majority of its population is Hindu, it has amongst the largest number of Muslims of any country on earth. Indeed, some even claim that its population has already outstripped China's to be the largest on the planet. The diversity of its cultures and languages, the colour and movement of its cities, are the stuff of which most countries' tourist broads could only dream. Yet India also tops world league tables for corruption, its cities are the most polluted on the planet, while for many the old cliché that India is a land of great potential, and always will be, remains all too true. India is plainly a country of world historical importance, and the current period of geopolitical flux gives it dramatically increased salience. Australia has realised the significance of its oceanic neighbour and has spent considerable effort to overcome what had been in the past very significant differences between the two members of the Commonwealth. But Canberra is only one of many suitors to come calling in New Delhi. The US, Japan, Britain, Germany, France, the ASEAN countries and many others all recognise how important the Republic has become and how much more important it is likely to be. Many of these see India as a large potential market, or an important anchor for a regional strategy. But there is more. At a time when the ideas that have been so crucial to the post-1945 international order seem to be on borrowed time, India is viewed by some as a potential pillar of liberalism in an increasingly illiberal era. But can India realise the ambitions that so many have for it? What are the prospects of the India's potential cliché being consigned to history's dustbin? And what are the things that India will need to do right to become the kind of country that its leaders want and its people deserve? We're extremely pleased to be able to have with us Adam Roberts, whose new book, Superfast Ultimate Primetime Nation, tackles these questions. Adam is a foreign correspondent with The Economist, with whom he has worked for nearly 20 years. Adam is currently the European business and finance correspondent based in Paris. Prior to taking on that hardship posting, he was the paper's South Asia bureau chief between 2010 and 2015, based in New Delhi, and on which experience the book is based. Adam, welcome to Melbourne. Thank you very much. Why don't we start with the title? It's a bombastic title. Some people have criticised you, I know, for for seeming, at least in the title, to be buying the Indian story hook, line and sinker. Um, Others have realised there's a degree of um, double meaning to it. Um, How did you land on this title and and what are you trying to convey um, with Superfast Primetime Ultimate Nation? Great. Well, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. Um, The title is a bit of a mouthful, and uh, I guess I should have understood that maybe people would would struggle a bit to to let it trip off the tongue, but it begins with the idea that in India, and I guess a lot of people here might have some connection to India, but in India, you can't really get away with an understatement. You've got to be bold. You've got to be strong. Just as the colours are strong and the the smells are strong and the heat is strong, you you can't be uh, a shrinking violet in India and expect to make an impact. So everything is a bit over the top. And so if you're launching a a power station in India, you call it an ultra-mega power project. If you're a journalist and you've managed to get an interview with someone interesting, it's a world exclusive. Um, Everything is is kind of exciting. So the prime minister is the first 24-hour by seven primetime prime minister. Everything is a little bit over over the top. So I thought, let me get a title that kind of captures the exuberance and the, the, the great energy of India and convey that to the readers And in a moment, I can unpack the structure and the meaning of the title as well. But the first point of it was just to get 
get the excitement, which India, when you're working there and I worked there for five years, India kind of infects you with its energy and its excitement, if it doesn't exhaust you. Yeah, and so what, I mean, that, that energy and that over-the-top language and that stuff that, that we all kind of love and also find frustrating, what do you think that tells us about India? As a, as a, and in contrast to, say, China, where everything is often yeah. either, if not understated, everything fits in sort of pre, prefigured imagery and ideas. Well, the reason I like India, I find it incredibly raucous and lively. If any of you have watched a Bollywood movie, people just burst out dancing for no reason. They're, they seem to be living life in a very intense and, and, and rich way, even though they might not be as well off as the Chinese, for example. It's also what makes India infuriating. It's why it's very hard to do business there. It's people may not keep to time and so on. So it's this very stimulating place. If, you know, many people get to India and find it too much and too much to cope with. But if you get there and you, you spend some time and you, you find you click with it, it becomes a hugely stimulating place. And as a journalist, as a foreign correspondent, the treats, the rewards you get by going out and exploring and chatting to ordinary people, and as I describe in the book, I go hiking with Hindu pilgrims in, in Kashmir, I go up to the border with China and Tawang, I ride a train across the length and breadth of India over four days. Just the encounters you have become, yeah, I keep coming back to this word, energy, energetic and stimulating, and that's, I don't know China, but I, I get the sense from China it's a more monochrome, more sort of predictable place. And India, the, we'll talk no doubt about the variety within India. You, you turn a corner and you will, you'll just be, your mind will be blown because you weren't expecting to see that 50-foot statue of Ganesh or, or whatever is around the corner. So the other thing is the title, of course, is there's four words and there's four main yeah. parts of the book. So why don't you let, 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 them, let the people who've purchased it in for, a, okay. for, for a, a sense of what they're getting. So the book, it is a reflection of the years I spent as a correspondent in India. It's unashamedly an outsider's view of India looking in and saying, what do we as the rest of the world need to understand about this place? Is India going to, to rise up and be something much more influential in our lives? Even if we don't have a direct connection to India, it, will it influence us more? And to give you the journalistic conceit that the book begins with, um, back in 2013, I went to visit an astrologer. I went to a slum in South Delhi, and this is all intended for an article for The Economist. I visited a, a man who used two green parrots to forecast the future, and I went to him and said, could you please use your parrots to, to tell me some interesting facts about what's coming up with India and, and with the world? And the astrologer made all sorts of utterly ridiculous predictions. He said that India would win the Soccer World Cup, uh, you probably know, but India is ranked about 130th in the world, somewhere behind Cape Verde and the soccer rankings. He told me that, you know, this was 2012, 2013, I can't remember. He told me that Mitt Romney was sure to be the next president of the United States uh, and made all sorts of colourful predictions. But he did predict that Narendra Modi would be the next prime minister of India, and he was right about that. And he predicted that in, in, he talked about India being the number one country. India would be a great, a great power. And that, in a sense, is the conceit of the book. I begin with this astrologer's prediction. Will India become a great power? Will it be number one, in his sense? And I ask this question, and my answers are based on four themes, four questions. So will it be a big economic power? Will it succeed hugely as an economic power in the way that, say, China has? And that, for me, I use the term superfast. Is India going to be a superfast economic power? The second question is, will India's democracy be an advantage for India or a disadvantage? There are those who say that India can never deliver what China has delivered because of democracy, because you have property rights, because you have courts, because you have 
arguing politicians and squabbling that democracy brings, you can never focus on development in the way that China has. So is India reaching a democratic prime time where, because voters are more uh, sensitive to perhaps to economic issues, that democracy becomes an advantage, not a disadvantage? The third question, the ultimate question of the book, is about foreign affairs, the ultimate realm, the realm beyond India. Uh, India, I think, for its first 70 years since independence, has been a power that punched very much below its weight. It really mattered very little to the rest of the world. But in the last 10 years or so, it matters a lot more, and it will increasingly matter. And so my question is, how will we see India mattering to the rest of us? And I look at three relationships in particular. And the final section, the nation section, touches on, well, you mentioned it in the introduction, but touches on the relationship between the Hindu majority, the 80% of the population who have a Hindu background, and their relationship with the 20% who are Muslim, Christian, Sikh, Buddhist, or some other minority, including the the forest-dwelling people and, and the people of the far northeast, and whether this Hindu majority will continue to be uh, respectful of secularism and the constitution that preserves, I think, a lot of social stability. And those are my four questions in the book, and in the four sections I take the reader through those, those themes. Well, why don't we dig into each one of those in turn and then open it up to, to questions from the audience? But, I mean, I think for many people, and certainly from an Australian point of view, um, the... The, you know, the, the, the economic potential of India yeah. is the thing that is, that is most immediately um, alluring in the sense that here is this vast um, country, huge potential market. It's going to be the most populous country in the world at some point in the next few decades. Um, and yet, you know, it's, you, you look at the, the big country across the, the, the mountain range that has done so much better than it so much more rapidly, and there is this stark contrast. And... And I guess the first kind of question is, what, what do you think are the, the biggest things or that, that are preventing that potential from being realised, economically speaking? And probably the, the, the three things that seem to stand out in a lot of the discussion. One, perhaps the most immediate, is corruption. Um, the second is protectionism and, and the kind of lack of competition because of protections of various kinds. And the third, this is a university event, I guess, is, is education, particularly a point that um, Craig Jeffrey, the director of the AII, likes to point out is there's a lot of schools and universities in India, but they're not actually educating the population mm. in a substantive sense. So what's, of those things or others, what do you think um, are the most important things that are, that are holding India mm. back? Wow. Okay, that's a big so question. Just, no, just, no. just start off at 10. Yeah. I mean, just to just to go back to the very basics, what is the potential? Why, why are people perhaps excited about India becoming something that is, is potential? And then maybe I can quickly talk about why it isn't. So the basic potential is, you know, enormous population, as you say, already 1.3 billion going up to 1.7 billion later this century. Within three or four years, India will overtake China. Uh, very young population, that's crucial. You know, whereas a China's population is aging rather quickly, the mean the median age in India is still in the mid-20s. So this is a huge labor force. If you look around the world at where the labor force is going to grow, or globally, how is the labor force of the world going to grow, enormously it comes in India. So this is a question of scale. India has scale. There are not many very large markets left in the world that have not grown up, and India is one of the last to be growing up as a single market. Uh, India was also unnecessarily, I think, but for political reasons, 
cordoned off from the world trading system for so many years because of the protectionism you talked about. Until the 1990s, it was a closed-off, isolated economy. So what we've begun to see in the last couple of decades is a, company, is a country that is opening up and beginning to sort of welcome the world in. You know, just this year, the first IKEA store opens in India. Apple stores are opening. This is the big, still early on in the process of India engaging the world. So this is why we think of the potential. You can look at things such as the... Successes in the space industry. India gets a space rocket to Mars for the cost of making the Hollywood film Gravity. India is beginning to make an impact in the way it hadn't done before. So people see the potential that you referred to. You then step back and say, well, why hasn't it already realised more of that potential? What are the specific things that have burdened it? Corruption is bad, but I wouldn't put corruption at the very top. We can go into how corruption holds things back, but I wouldn't say that's the main reason for, for problems. I'd say it's the failure of, of the state and the institutions to deliver what they need to deliver. Um, anyone who's been to India will be able to testify to the weakness of the infrastructure, the fact that India doesn't have very good roads and bridges and, and so on. But probably the most important thing is human capital. The fact, it's your education point, but it's broader than that. It's the fact that China, for example, did a much better job of investing in education and in healthcare and maternal mortality, getting maternal mortality down, all those elements of having a healthier, better informed, smarter population, that I think was the fundamental weakness of India. The bits of India that really thrive are those very bright graduates who are churned out by engineering schools in places like Andhra Pradesh. Those brilliantly educated Indians go off and they staff biggest, the most successful companies in the world in the United States. If you look at the biggest United States companies, the Googles and Microsofts and so on, a remarkably high proportion of them are run by Indians. And a very, very successful portion of the, in, of the American population is the Indian diaspora. So there's nothing inherently about India that stops it from being successful. It's about educating the people to succeed. And I, and I guess that sort of gets to the if we sort of move to the, the sort of Modi question, um, because that was, you know, Modi's great claim was that he had achieved in Gujarat the the sort of level of economic growth um, of the kind that the country needed, the country deserved, call it what you want. Um, under Modi, I mean, do, can Modi deliver on his this promise to make India like Gujarat, do you think? Um, and, and, another, and what are the problems of that? Because I think, yeah. you know, as, as, as you talk about in the book, you know, the, the argument between um, Amartya Sen and, and Jagdish Bhagwati about, on the one hand, is it, is it a, do you do growth first and then let human capital come, mm. or do you do human capital first and let growth follow? So for those who, who don't know, Gujarat is in the west of India and uh, has, a, has a coast and has been a very successful state on economic grounds. Lots of investment in oil refinery, some manufacturing, lots of the world's diamonds are polished there. In terms of just economic performance, it's, and if you measure it by, say, investment by companies, Gujarat has, has just about outperformed every other state in, in India um, in the last couple of decades, including and especially in the period when Modi was, was running the state. Um, Gujarat has had some immense other problems we might want to get to, but on a just purely economic basis, Gujarat was rather successful you would get there and there were no power cuts. The electricity supply was reliable. The water flowed well. Uh, there was a gas network. So if you were a company and you needed natural gas, you had a good supply of it. 
Now, some of this was because the government was well run in Gujarat, the civil servants were not so corrupt, um, the leadership was quite strong under Modi. It was also because Gujarat has a long history of being a trading region. Uh, it's lucky to be beside the coast, so it's got lots of ports for ships to come into. There's certain peculiar facts about Gujarat that are very hard to repeat elsewhere in India. Second point, there are also other bits of India that are also very successful. So if you look at Kerala or Tamil Nadu, both in the south, they're also very, very successful economically for different reasons. Kerala has a large number of people who work abroad and send money home, but it's also just a very well-run state. They have good social provision, good health care for women and so on. Uh, Tamil Nadu, similar, um, and better infrastructure than some places. So to say that Gujarat is somehow an utter exception from the rest of India is a mistake. But to then say you're going to take what you did in one little state and apply it for the whole of India is an enormously bold claim. Narendra Modi is happy to make enormously bold claims, but it's hard to deliver on that. And it might be too much for anyone to expect a single person to to change the whole of India in in two or three years. Um, His focus, we thought, when he came into power would be to replicate what he did in Gujarat, to focus on infrastructure, to focus on... Uh, for example, getting electricity out to everyone and so on. He's done some of that, but we might want to go into some of the details of the rather crazy things he's done as well, such as cancelling all the, all the cash in the economy because he thought that was a good idea for fighting corruption. It's not a good idea for helping your economy to grow to remove all the cash from the economy. So he's not been the entirely safe pair of hands that people presented him as when he was chief minister. Yeah, that, I mean, to what extent do you think demonetization? So that was that removal of those yeah. those those notes from the from from um, circulation. Do you think that's kind of emblematic of Modi? That kind of big shock, or kind of a shock and awe exercise that that comes out of nowhere has these dramatic, you know, and it captures the imagination in the country. It happened when Trump was elected, so no, you know, outside the country, it was it was sort of not noticed so much, at least not at the time. Is it emblematic of his of both his strengths and his weaknesses as a as a reformer? I think Modi is a showman. He, he, he likes drama. Um, one of my favourite bits of the book was when I went to Gujarat and I talked to some of his school friends from, obviously they're grown up now, but you know, friends of his when they were all at school. And I asked them, what games did you like to play? How did you like to, to pass the time when you weren't at school? And they said, oh, we used to do drama. You know, he, Modi was very fond of playing in the school play or, or just playing drama among the friends. He would always play a king. He'd always be the one in charge. Uh, But he's a man who is very fond of performance. He cares enormously about his dress. He's very finickety about the clothes he wears. He likes bright colours. He likes, as we were talking about the title, he likes to make an impact. And I think that he sees policy often as theatre. We might want to talk about foreign policy, but when he does engagements with other countries, it's very much about him and his personal engagement with another leader. It's about him going to a country and having an impact. And I think on economic policy too, he's not... To be fair to him, he's not a trained economist. He once said to a room about this size where I was, he said, I'm not a trained economist. He said, you know, it was the opening line of a meeting about the economy. I don't know about economics, he said to us. And yet he announces this radical economic policy of scrapping the currency temporarily. And I think he did that because he was drawn to the drama, the flair, the performance of it, and making a political impact by doing something very bold, possibly without really understanding that the consequences of doing this would be, for the economy, rather grave. But I think if Modi were here now, and you were to bring up this theme, 
he would say he doesn't regret a moment of it because politically, ordinary Indians think that it was the boldest, bravest, toughest thing you could do to fight corruption, to scrap that currency. And how do they know that? They know because they suffered and they had to queue up for weeks to the banks. So if they suffered, think how much richer people must have suffered even more. And so they're deluded, I think, by the idea that he was bold, they suffered, therefore something was done about corruption. And I think they've made a big mistake. Well, let's, let's turn to Modi and, and Indian politics because he's easily the dominant figure of Indian politics. I think he's one of the most interesting um, people on the global stage in terms of leaders and, and not just because India is this, at this kind of key pivot point, but he's really quite remarkable. And he's very curious and he's ambitious, he's charismatic, he's a master of the media, but he has, as you point out in the book and as maybe everyone knows, he has this dark side yeah. to him. Um, you've interviewed him a number of times. You've been on the receiving end of the bear hug, so if you touch Adam, you've touched Modi indirectly. Um, I, I, was wondering, yeah, I was wondering, perhaps, I mean, you sketched out a little bit about his, his, his sense of self, which is fairly considerable. But firstly, you know, what, and, and you've met him a bunch of times, what's your sense of him as a, firstly, just individually at that personal level? Um, and it is, as a journalist, you know, journalists like to write the story of nations through individuals yeah. and, and, or to tell a broader story through an individual. Um, and I wonder also that how you felt when you went to interview him, given that the economists very pointedly didn't endorse him mm. um, and what his kind of reaction to that was in the sense mm. that uh, I remember in the lead up to the election, there was the, uh, the, 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 the leader that said, although he presents a lot of promise and potential, Ultimately, the newspaper couldn't endorse someone who had done what he'd done in, in Gujarat. So, what, A, what's your sense of the man? And B, how, how did you find that kind of legacy? Yeah. Okay, well, let me quickly unpack that for those who might not know the context. So, in 2002 in Gujarat, there were terrible riots. Um, Modi had just become chief minister of Gujarat. And there was, it's very detailed to get into, but essentially over a thousand people were murdered. Most of the victims were Muslim. Most of the perpetrators were Hindu or the police. Modi was in charge of the state, and the accusation against him was that he didn't do enough to, to repress the violence, to stop the violence early. And worse, or as bad, following that set of massacres, he somewhat exploited the violence and the history of the violence to, to keep on winning elections and to, to muster his, his Hindu nationalist base to support him. In that context, he was banned from traveling to the United States. He wasn't allowed to travel to the European Union. He became an international pariah for many years, and the point of view of my magazine, of The Economist, was that when he came for, for election in 2014, we said, well, we would love to endorse you. You have lots of ideas about the economy that we like. You know, you do seem to believe in modernizing India. There's a lot about you that is much more appealing than the other parties. But you've never addressed your past. You've never talked about what happened in 2002. You've never really answered difficult questions, including when I interviewed him and asked him the questions. And if, if you want to be the leader of a country that is so big and so divided, we feel that you should address that. It's something you should talk about. And if you can't talk about it, we think you've got something to hide. And therefore, we won't endorse you. So I expected, when I subsequently interviewed him again, that he wouldn't be very happy. Um, and instead, because we did stick him on the cover, because we did talk about him a lot, I think he was just delighted to be the centre of attention. So <laughs> he's, he's got a thick skin and he brushes, brushes it off. Modi is a very self-confident man. He is built up a great deal by PR companies and by his many, many supporters. He supposedly has 34 million followers on Twitter. Um, he is a very active campaigner in elections. He's a very good public speaker. And 
he is built up by his supporters as a man with a 56-inch chest. Um, I went to visit his tailor in Ahmedabad, and I said, does he really have a 56-inch chest? And the tailor said, nah, about 36 or something like that. <laughs> but but the, the image of him is not too different from the reality. Modi is rather charismatic, rather keen through his hugs and his wish to sort of charm you, to, to make you feel you're rather close to him. So the last time I went to interview him, and I've been in India for many years by then, I wanted to jump into questions about labour reform and tax reform or whatever it was. And he, he wouldn't let me. He wanted to complain that I was too thin. He said, you can't go back to Europe. You look far too thin. People would think we didn't feed you properly. And so he was really trying to be the charming man as well as the, the tough guy. And so in person, he is, he is charming. He's a man who liked to talk about his holidays as a young man, his visits to places like the United States where he went backpacking. And he wanted to talk about the pleasure he had in in going around parts of the US and so on. So there's a charm to him, and there's a very dark side to him. There's a ruthlessness going back to what happened in 2002. And those two sides, the light and the dark, make him a fascinating character. They also make him, I think, not utterly unlike Donald Trump in the United States. He's a man who will, who will whip up his base, who will exploit the extremists who support him for political gain, and then he'll turn another face to others and, and present a different, a different character. So... He's a fascinating and sometimes disturbing figure and sometimes very charming figure. And I agree with you. I think he's one of the most interesting political figures in the world today. But one of the um, covers of The Economist portrayed him as this one-man band. Yeah. And there was that famous thing of got all of the, 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 the drum on his back and the cymbals and the, and the sort of thing. And what struck me about that image that, that I think is a really – that gets at a bigger issue about a, a country like India is you know, there's so much on him. And he sees himself as the, the key. You know, there's a touch of the Fidel Castro's of the I can fix everything about this economy. But in a country of that size and scale, um, you know, you don't have to be a, a, a um, advocate of uh, a fully paid up subscriber to Hayek to, to believe that there's just only so much information and only so much one person can do atop the pyramid of state power. Um, is, is there too much kind of riding on Modi himself, and can any one man and one government crack the nut that is such a vast country? Yeah. Um, There is too much. I mean, both in reality, too much rides on him, and in perception, we we perhaps focus too much on him. Uh, Just to go back to that cover of The Economist, in addition to the cymbals and the drums and the bassoon and everything else, we gave him the kitchen sink as well, and nobody in India (laughs) notices that. Um, there is an enormous amount invested in Modi, and an Indian prime minister is not as powerful as an American president or a Chinese premier. Um, as in Australia, you will understand this, you know, the, the powers of the states really matter. I mean, if you're the chief minister of a state, you have a great deal of power over certain issues, uh, including education and health and so on. Um, and so any effective prime minister has to be effective at dealing with the states, but also with his party and with parliament. It's a true democracy, and there, there are divisions of power. That said, right now in India, there is no political figure who comes within a mile of Modi in terms of the power and influence that he has. He won, in 2014, an extraordinarily successful election uh, with a record-breaking mandate. No opposition party, meaning any other party other than Congress, had ever had a mandate as large as he achieved in 2014. Some of that was because people were fed up with Congress, but a great deal of it was because people said... I just, I'll take a chance on this Modi guy. He seems quite forceful and have some ideas of what he wants to do. 
I worry that the, the depth of the bench, that the strength of the Indian government is pretty thin. You know, you get, even Modi doesn't have enormous economic skills, for example, but you get below Modi, and there are not that many other ministers who you can expect to, to make a really big change to governance and policy and so on in, in India. So it's a pretty limited uh, range of talents. The BJP, his party, used to talk about having a galaxy of stars of leaders to choose between. The reality is there are not many, but there's one more than any other party has, and so he can be, he can be dominant for now. Yeah, which gets to the broader issue around opposition politics and whether there's a sense that, you know, is Congress in this terminal decline? Mm. Um, the Gandhi dynasty, you know, you, you, I think you do a good job at, at, at depicting Rahul Gandhi as the guy who basically doesn't seem to want it enough yeah. uh, in the book. And, and I was wondering whether, you know, can Congress return? Is there prospects for a meaningful national political organisation that can challenge the BJP? Or is the balance or the, the power really going to be at the regional level, the big effective regional governments in, in yeah. the various parts of this vast continent? It's interesting to look back to independence and to remember how dominant Congress was in 1947. It was the party of of liberation. It was the party because of Mahatma Gandhi who had had led the resistance against the British and then got the credit uh, for, for getting independence. And to the enormous credit of not just Congress, but of those leaders at the time, they crafted a very liberal, secular constitution and, and made a democracy that immediately gave universal suffrage and gave women the vote and so on. And in every subsequent decade since 1947, the power of Congress has ebbed steadily away. And so their control of state governments has fallen. So now they, talking about the bigger states, they control Kerala, Karnataka, and Punjab, and that's about it. Uh, the BJP has many, many more big states. And <clears throat> as well as the decline of Congress, you've had a steady increase since the 1980s of these regional political figures. And we outside of India maybe understandably don't know the names of Chandra Babu Naidu and Mamta Banerjee and Mayawati and all these big political figures uh, who preside over states, or did preside over states, in the case of Uttar Pradesh, of 200 million people. I mean, to, to think that you could be the chief minister of a state with more people than Brazil and the rest of the world has not a clue who you are or where your state is, the scale of India is just mind-boggling. And these regional political figures at least at moments, become enormously powerful. So if you're looking for where opposition could come from in India to the BJP, it's just possible that if regional political figures and the Congress party were to coordinate their responses, they can put up a very strong force against the BJP. But that requires having very deft political leadership, especially in Congress, people who are able to make quick and clever deals with those regional politicians. And in the form of Rahul Gandhi, the current de facto leader of the Congress Party, now he is the, the grandson of Jawaharlal Nehru. Is that right, or is he the great-grandson? Anyway, you had Jawaharlal Nehru as the, as the first one, and you move your way through Indira Gandhi down to, to Rajiv Gandhi, and now down to, to Rahul Gandhi. And with the, as with many dynasties, the quality drops with each generation... <laughs> And I'm afraid he is, he's a nice man, but he doesn't want to be prime minister. He doesn't have the skills and he doesn't have the appetite. You know, when you talk to a politician, such as Modi, you see the glint in their eyes. They hunger for power. You talk to Raul Gandhi and he'd much rather be on a beach or you know, doing something else. So 
I don't see Raul Gandhi as the man who will pull all the opposition and the regional parties together. But maybe someone else can. But I wouldn't, if you're going to ask me who, I would struggle to come up with a name of who could actually do it. And I guess there's that sense that you know, almost everyone seems to think 2019 is a foregone conclusion. And so you're looking out over a you know, considerable period of time and then you're getting into the who can tell where we're going. Yeah. Um, well, let, let's turn to the ultimate side of the book, the foreign affairs um, and, the, and the greater world. And I think Modi has been, I mean, even people who watch him closely are astonished by his global, his globetrotting. Mm. And I, I think I counted it up. I think his first year he made 62 trips abroad to 32 countries or something. He went to some countries multiple times. Yeah. Um, and I was just wondering what your, firstly what your take is on how effective that's been um, and, what was, and what was behind such, you know, such you know, hyperactivity. Um, and then we'll get to the sort of broader, broader questions of where he thinks he's taking his country. But, but just your take on that kind of yeah. early, you know, fast global diplomacy. I basically think it was a good idea. I think, as I said earlier, I think India had been underperforming for decades. It really had punched very much below its weight. And his arrival on the scene was, it was interesting. The world was beginning to take notice of India again because of his arrival. And so as someone who could just get people to notice, it was impressive. And, and I know he came to Australia and he addressed the diaspora. You know, he would have these big rallies in New York and London and, and Australia and Singapore, all over the place. So he... He would make an impact wherever he went. So I think that, that basically was... You didn't necessarily get trade deals out of it or, or new alliances or anything, but it was a good thing to sort of get the world to, to pay a bit of attention. Even before he set off on all this globetrotting, he did a very interesting thing. He invited all the leaders of South Asia to come to his inauguration. Um, I went to the inauguration too and was posted at the far, far back of this massive uh, arena at the presidential palace with the other journalists... Um, and I took my journalistic initiative to get up and walk right to the very front and sit among a bunch of Gujarati MPs. I ended up sitting on the lap of a Gujarati MP. Um, but it was amazing, because with that vantage point, I could see, and amazingly, the, the Prime Minister of Pakistan came, the leaders of Nepal and the Maldives and Sri Lanka and Afghanistan, and all that, not Bangladesh, but everyone else basically came. And remember, India has been very isolated within its region. It's very unpopular among its neighbours. It's a very poorly integrated region. And yet they came to Modi's inauguration. So even before he did his globetrotting, he was reaching out to the other countries of the region much more effectively than others had done. So I welcome all of that. And going back to what I said before about him seeing theatre and performance as a form of policy-making a lot of what he does is about him personally going to places. And in one of my interviews, I, I said to him, you've done a lot of traveling in your first year. I'd forgotten it was 62. But, you know, you've done lots of trips. Haven't you wasted your time a bit? Shouldn't you have done something a bit more useful? And he said, no, no, I, I had to go around the world so people could meet me. People could know who I am. It was a very sort of narcissistic response that the world had to know who, who I am, who I, Narendra Modi, am. But I think that's his understanding of foreign policy. If he personally goes somewhere then they have done something about foreign policy. It's obviously a limited understanding of how to influence people, but at least as a start, it's not too bad. Remember the context that the previous Prime Minister, Manmohan Singh, lovely man, really gentle, thoughtful, intelligent man, utterly silent, never said a word. The joke in Delhi was that even his dentist couldn't get him to open his mouth. <laughs> and so you had a Prime Minister suddenly who would speak. I mean, he would say the right things often, and that was a welcome change, um, to have someone who wanted India to punch at least at its weight and not below its weight. 
Yeah, and, and in, in the book you focus on three relationships. Oddly enough, not Australia is not one of them. Um, but the US is probably the most interesting because yeah. that's a bilateral relationship of huge importance, but also that's, that's moved very swiftly over the yeah. past decade or so. Um, Trump has been on the receiving end of the, the Modi hug, so you're one removed from Mr. Trump, I guess. Um, but where, what's your sense of the trajectory of the US-India um, relationship? And, and does Trump present a kind of opportunity or risk to that trajectory, do you think? Uh, yes, opportunity and risk. Um, but the trajectory is very clear. And I used to cover Pakistan as well. So it was very instructive to go to Pakistan and see how they saw their relationship with America and then to come back into India and to watch it again. Essentially, back in the 1990s, America had a policy of hyphenation. In other words, you would talk about India-Pakistan and you would run the two together. You might even talk about India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and you, and you would sort of blur the three countries as if they were a, a thing to deal with together. And then in the late 1990s, after the nuclear tests, after the two countries almost went to war, there was a turn, and the United States stopped talking about India, Pakistan, and took a bet on India as a rising economic power, and was determined to break India out from that idea of South Asia as one lump, and to engage it as a potential ally, uh, thinking about China. And, and I think there were several ways of seeing this. You saw the civil nuclear deal that George W. Bush and then Barack Obama pushed through with Manmohan Singh uh, to allow the US and the Indians to cooperate on, on civil nuclear power. Um, you saw an enormous increase in trade between the United States and India, a lot of it services and outsourcing from, from America to India. You saw a massive increase in migration from India to the United States. A lot of these bright engineers from Andhra Pradesh who went to Silicon Valley. Uh, that diaspora in America is now an enormously successful minority, immigrant minority in America. And by and large, India as a big democracy with a rising economy has begun to be seen by not just America, but other democracies as an increasingly useful not ally, because India doesn't want to make alliances, but an increasingly useful partner. And you see it in intelligence sharing on counterterrorism. You see it uh, on naval cooperation in the Indian Ocean. Uh, you see it across the board, technology transfers, military sales. India used to get almost all of its military kit from Russia. It now increasingly gets it from the United States and from Israel. Basically, there's a broad, I think, realignment, geopolitical alignment going on in which it used to be the United States and Pakistan together and Russia with India together and China playing an odd role here and there, attacking India sometimes and sometimes out of the picture. What we're seeing, I think, in the last couple of decades is a shift around America will never completely cut off ties with Pakistan, but it's become a much, much colder relationship than it once was. Pakistanis are beginning to warm up to the Russians, amazingly. Meanwhile, India and America are becoming much closer, and China is, is a big looming factor behind all this. So there's been an enormous realignment, and it has been pushed by Clinton, Bill Clinton, by uh, George W. Bush, and by Obama, and it was absolutely clear that Hillary Clinton would have, done ex would have carried on on this trajectory. Trump, I defy anyone... If anyone in the room can tell me what Trump's going to do, brilliant. I mean, I... Maybe Trump in foreign affairs or military affairs will be constrained by you know, the grown-ups in his administration. And so far, there's nothing to, to really suggest there'll be a massive breakdown in relations. Although Trump's 
immense and crazy hostility to immigration. It really threatens India. It, India wants to have access to American universities and, and that flow of, of the diaspora. So there's a potential for a clash under Trump. Yeah, that, that, I mean, uh, contracting out is a sort of visceral thing that, that Trump exactly, has yeah. hated for, for, for decades. Yeah. Although, and, and as you said, though, that the recent announcement that Trump made about where he basically fingered Pakistan and said, you guys haven't been doing enough yeah. and India can help us out. So you yeah. see, I think that fits in with that that pattern of, 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 of his predecessors with Obama. and, and Trump um, also was probably unhappy that he ha- early on after winning, um, he had a conversation with, with Sharif, the Pakistani civilian leader. And the Pakistanis basically released the whole transcript in which clearly Sharif wrapped Trump around their little finger and got him to, to agree that Pakistan was a very successful country and those Indians are a bit silly. So he, he may have felt a bit duped by the Pakistanis as well. And, and the, other, the other big one, of course, is China. Um, and the, in some respects, the motivating force behind the alignment of the US to, towards uh, India was was about China, and you know, the line that you would hear quite regularly, and still hear, even though I, I think it's not quite right, is you know there's only one country that can balance China, and that's India in terms of its scale and its, and its reach, um, and it's certainly for the US they see India as a useful partner in in basically containing Chinese influence, um, but the bilateral relationship itself between China and India is tense. They have that huge disputed border. We had the recent standoff um, in Doklam as the latest and probably, probably the most disconcerting of, of the border standoffs of, of recent years. Um, what's your sense of where that relationship is going in terms of, of the sort of larger patterns of, the, of, of Asia's international politics? Yeah, um, I agree with everything you said there. Uh, I think Doklam was... <coughs> is seen, the, the resolution of Dogham, and I guess people in the room know it, but it's this uh, part of the border where Bhutan, China, and India, the three countries, meet. Uh, the Indians accuse the Chinese of extending a road in what is, in effect, their territory uh, down towards the Indian border, and if that road had been extended, that would have allowed the Chinese to bring artillery pieces very close to a bit of <coughs> India that is quite exposed. And the Indians, I think, felt the need to respond to this. My count, my reading of it is that the Chinese didn't expect the Indians to respond by sending soldiers over the border, which the Indians did, to confront the construction crews. Not, not with guns, not violently, but just physical presence. So I think the Chinese didn't expect that, that the Indians responded more robustly than had been expected. And then it took some time, but it was peacefully resolved just in time for a, a summit in China, the BRICS summit. I think it counts as a success, as a win for India, to have confronted the Chinese and to have resolved it peacefully uh, with no obvious loss of face to either side. And I think to some extent it's a pretty good template for how they might hope to resolve other uh, tensions on the border. But the longer-term trend that you're talking about is a very worrying one for India because the Chinese, far more developed, five times larger economy, much greater military capacity, also just physically they occupy the higher ground. And so the Tibetan plateau in China um, has very good train lines and road lines and so on. And I've been up on the Indian side to a town called Tawang, and it's in Tibet. It's just the Indian bit of Tibet. (coughs) And you have to drive up the most hideous road. It literally took two days of driving to get there. And the infrastructure is not very good on the Indian side. And if you want to get some soldiers or something up there, it's, it's hard, hard work. So 
the, the memory of the war 50 odd years ago in 1962 in which the Chinese very handily beat the Indian army and humiliated India, that memory is still quite strong. <clears throat> and the, just, as you say, the border remains disputed. So India is at a real disadvantage. India also has very large population centres right up near the northern border. Delhi is pretty close to the, the far north border of India. Whereas, of course, China's main population is quite far away. So Indians feel much more exposed by this border than, than China would. The fact that they've never been able to have a serious discussion, well, never, but they haven't recently in the last few decades had a serious discussion about actually resolving the border is a worry. Instead, they have regular discussions about managing the border and how to try to ease these tensions. But clearly those talks don't quite work either because in, as well as Dokdom, we regularly have examples of Chinese soldiers doing incursions onto Indian territory. Occasionally, I'm sure it goes the other way as well. So even the management of the border isn't as smooth as you would hope. Um, so yeah, the, in the long run, it's a very worrying thing to have two-fifths of the world's population having a potentially very serious dispute over, over the land that China calls a large part of India South Tibet and won't recognise visas of people who, passports of people who come from it. What do, before we open things up to, which I, doubtless will be many questions from the floor, um, the final piece of the puzzle is the nation one, probably the most contentious. And I might go back to, to Modi, and, and particularly you mentioned um, in The Economist um, of, uh, leader about facing up to your past. I was wondering, how does he do it? I mean, when, when asked about Gujarat directly, how does he respond? How does he say, yeah. deal with it? Does he just ignore it? What's the response? So generally, he's ignored it. Um, in the first few years after the massacres happened, <clears throat> he gave a couple of interviews. I have a friend who's a TV journalist who, who did one of the last interviews at that time with him. And during the course of an interview, he was, he was asked directly about it, and he ripped his microphone off and stormed out of the studio. Uh, that's not how to deal with it. You know, a little bit of PR <laughs> training. By the time I was asking him the questions, he had very smooth and prepared answers. And they weren't convincing answers, but he didn't get angry. He was very measured in his response. And so I said to him, how, you know, how do you answer the allegations that you enabled or you at least didn't stop the violence that took place on your watch in, in Gujarat? And... The real answer is he didn't really dare to do so because he knew that doing so would cost him enormously politically. He would lose his next election in Gujarat. So he didn't dare risk his political reputation uh, by moving too early to clamp down on the violence. That's the real answer. But what he said to me was he's been asked this question many times and he has won, he said, 10 elections since they happened. And the fact that he won a bunch of elections proves that he has passed this exam with flying colours. So to, to quickly interpret that, he said, because he's relatively popular, who cares what he did? And it's a disturbing idea that because you win elections, you should be able to get away with allegations, at least, of you know, very, very serious human rights abuses. If you look back at reports written by Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International, they are very, very clear about the chain of command and the things that they say went wrong in Modi's government at the time. But he has never addressed in detail those things. There have been some legal investigations, to be fair. Um, I interview a bunch of people who claim that evidence was destroyed, that witnesses were, were shut up. Uh, there are 
examples of people who mysteriously were murdered in Gujarat. I'm not saying that they were murdered in order to stop them talking about these things, but they were murdered. Um, so there are questions to be asked, and he doesn't answer them, basically. One of, one of the, I think, striking features of the book is a very, op, I think, ultimately quite optimistic sense of India and one of, the, of India's future, and one of the reasons for it is um, because it's a democratic, secular country, ultimately, yeah. and that that constitutional structure remains strong, even with the leader, with the sort of what some people claim is a kind of proto-authoritarianism. And yet, as you touch on in this final part of the book, the, the rise of Hindu nationalism, particularly in the way in which it's been manipulated by Modi, is, it seems to be the one kind of worry you've got. Um, what's your sense of that, that, that um, how that trend is playing and where you see it going? Yeah, I think I'm not that optimistic. I have plenty of worries about the economy and other things. But yeah, I do worry seriously about the, the, the relationship between the Hindu majority and, and the minorities. <clears throat> um, it's the silence. There's, politicians make very determined and deliberate use of silence to send messages. And the failure to speak out about something is a very clear message to your supporters about where your sympathies lie. And so if you look back over the last two or three years in India, we've had some horrific things happening. Uh, we've had the lynching of quite a few Muslim uh, men who are accused of trading in cattle, in cows, by mobs of, of young Hindu men. Uh, we've had vandalism of churches, and we've had the murder of journalists, including just last week, a, a very admirable woman who ran a newspaper in, in Bangalore and um, had a, a very admirable history of being against superstition, against caste, against repression, against Hindu nationalism. And she was assassinated on her doorstep uh, a week ago. Now, as worrying as that event was, it was disgusting to see how many Hindu nationalists on Twitter celebrated her murder and said, excuse my uh, use of a rude word, but said, thank God that bitch is dead, and said, you know, she should have been killed earlier, all sorts of terrible things. Again, crazy people say stuff on social media, who should be held to account for that? I think it's worrying that some of the people who said those things are followed by Narendra Modi on Twitter. He doesn't follow many people, but he does follow those people. At the very least, he could have unfollowed them. And maybe something's happened in the last 24 hours, I haven't checked. But at least as of a couple of days ago, he continued to follow those people. Now, the silence, the not speaking out about the lynchings early and so on, and then the choice to keep on following those sorts of people, sends at least implicitly a message to the sort of people uh, who might want to close down liberal voices and close down opposition uh, that they will get a sort of green light to carry on. I'm not suggesting Modi encourages people to go out and murder, but I'm just saying it changes the mood of the country. It, it makes people think twice before they speak out in a way that is not healthy for a democracy. And I guess not dissimilar to your earlier line about the parallels with Trump in the way Trump responds to, responded to Charlottesville. Well, exactly. So, I mean, how you, whether you choose to condemn and condemn quickly is a pretty clear signal to your followers about where your sympathies lie. And there were many examples earlier on, including ministers in Modi's government who, <coughs> who gave election rallies or even after the election who, who condemned minorities as not real Indians and so on. And he never punished them. He didn't sack them. So there are reasons why Obama and others have sent public messages to Modi telling him he needs to be clearer about human rights and so on. All right, we have two microphones. We have plenty of time. Um, so if you could just, I've just got a microphone. There's one, so here, here, and here. So at the front, um, on my left, 
right there. So there, there, there. If you just, I'll keep it. Thank you very much for your presentation. It was extraordinarily interesting and I've learnt so much. Um, I have a very quick question. Right now there's a problem in Myanmar, which is a, a personal interest. And in relation to India, there's a population of 40,000 Rohingya Muslim people yeah. in India. They're talking about deportation, but there's absolutely no concept of where these people are going to be deported to. And with the current outpouring of refugees that will be going from Myanmar to Bangladesh, there's also a porous border from Bangladesh to India. So there's a lot of concern about um, if that population will stay in Bangladesh or then would they transit through to other countries. Could you comment about those ideas? Sure. Should I do one by one? Yes, yes please. Uh, great question. And, and <clears throat> I mean, what's happening in Myanmar is, is appalling and Sushi should be speaking out and it's shameful that she doesn't. Um, the, the Rohingya obviously... They're Muslim, and if you're a Hindu nationalist leader, you don't want to be seen to be too sympathetic uh, because you want your, your base to, to rather agree with you. So Modi went to Myanmar not long ago, about a week ago, I think, and he met Aung San Suu Kyi, and their joint statement talked about the terrorists and how you mustn't give in to terrorists and so on. And as you say, India is, is talking about deporting its own Rohingya population. I don't believe it would really happen, but just talking about it is, is ugly enough. Um, it, it is very interesting how India has an enormously attractive record for welcoming refugees over the years. The number of Tamils who came up from Sri Lanka, the, uh, the, the people who've come in from Tibet, there's a large Tibetan population in India. The Rohingya population is fascinating. They didn't just settle near the border with Myanmar, but they came all the way across into uh, near to Kashmir, to the, to the orchards and the, and the region below Kashmir. I think some of the reason for talking about kicking out the Rohingya population is because among... Uh, the Hindu population um, in Jammu, near to, near to Kashmir, there is a resentment of the Rohingyas there. So it's a signal to them more than anything else. Um, but clearly, India has an admirable history of being a welcoming country to refugees. It hasn't boasted about it much in the past. And if under Modi it, it turns away from that, then it's a, it's a very worrying trend. A trend I put it together with with is the way he talks about Bangladesh. And, and in the election campaign, he said some very ugly things about Bangladesh. He would go and campaign in Assam and the, the, these ter- West Bengal near to the Bangladesh border. And he would talk about kicking the, the Bangladeshi migrants out, and, and basically they're Muslims. Uh, at the same time, he would talk about welcoming refugees from Bangladesh. Well, who are the refugees? They're Hindus. They're Bangladeshi Hindus. He wanted to give them refugee status. So in his mind, again, going back to Trump, you should distinguish between people who want sanctuary in your country on the basis of their religious belief. And that is appalling. And that shouldn't be the basis for any refugee policy. And so I completely agree with you, and I think it's terrible. I don't actually think they'll kick anyone out. I think it's something he says for political reasons. I don't think they'll follow through on it. Because actually the numbers, among 1.3 billion people, you can probably cope with a few tens of thousands without too much trouble. Okay, um, gentleman in the front here. Um, I, I had a question, but that made me think of another question. Uh, so, just in terms of, if you're kind of looking at the percentage of the youth population, yeah. you know, kind of you, you look at the trend in the rest of the world, uh, you tend to have this kind of familiarity or kind of kinship with liberal democracies and the, the kind of the liberal democratic ideals and this, that, the other thing. Do you think that there's kind of a, a growing, or did you sense in your time in India a sense of kind of growing? secularism amongst young people and then my original 
question was just in regards to um, this, just the, the Silk Road. So I know that China has kind of been basically punishing, well, basically using its power over, um, over Pakistan to kind of go, you just kind of be quiet and do whatever India says so they'll let us build the road through their territory to a degree. And so what's the... What do you think is the kind of the, the prospects of that leading to this kind of Eurasian kind of um, economic zone? Okay. Uh, on, on secularism, um, in my experience, the most enthusiastic um, <coughs> people for a secular, tolerant society were actually older people, not younger. I, I think that there's a generation of people who, who saw the enormous benefits uh, in the post-war period of remaining a secular country and treasured it. My worry is that among, not everyone of course, but among some younger Indians, there's a more of a nationalist, not necessarily Hindu nationalist, but more of a nationalist idea that as India gets stronger, um, it should be more confident about throwing its weight around and maybe it shouldn't just absorb these soft liberal ideas. If you look at the Indian constitution, it's drawn a lot from the American constitution, a lot of strong but imported ideas about individual rights uh, that maybe more nationalist people might not agree is the way to go. So personally, my feeling is that it's more a worry that secularism might be weakened rather than get stronger with younger people. Um, on the Silk Road, um, China is very influential in Pakistan. It's promised supposedly $40 billion of loans, not, not grants, to, to build infrastructure in Pakistan that would benefit China. Um, the Indians don't subscribe to this. I think the Indians are right, actually. I think a lot of the One Belt, One Road stuff is, is pretty... What's that Australian word? Shonky? You say this sometimes. Um, there's a lot of nonsense talked about the infrastructure that the Chinese say they're going to build, including the infrastructure they talk about building in Pakistan. And I've spent a lot of time in Sri Lanka and seen, yes, quite good infrastructure built, but massive debts built up. Uh, state-run companies from China trying to get political control in Sri Lanka because of those debts. Uh, there's the port in Hambantota in southern Sri Lanka that is a pointless, it's a lump of rock with a big hole in it where ships come in and then have dr- trucks have to drive a long way across Sri Lanka to get to where they're supposed to be, where there's another port. So I think Sri Lanka was conned by the Chinese to build this infrastructure, no doubt for payoffs for the politicians. Um, India says it doesn't want to be part of the One Belt, One Road, Silk Road stuff. Uh, and that is one of the reasons, potentially, why the Chinese were annoyed and why we had the Doklam clashes. Um, Pakistan will take $40 billion, of course it will. They'd be mad not to. And the politicians who accept it will get their cuts. And, you know, there will be more Chinese activity in Pakistan, of course. The Indians will hate that. There are parts of Kashmir where the, the infrastructure is going to be built that is claimed by India. And yet it's occupied by China or it's... Pakistani occupied and the Chinese are building material there. So the Indians do not support the One Belt, One Road strategy, and that annoys the Chinese. Okay, Ravi. Adam, thank you. Uh, I think you painted a very wide canvas. Thank you for that. And I mean, we could debate each other for a long time, but this is not the occasion or there's time for that. Uh, in relation to the Rohingyas, for instance, yeah. India, as as you know, is a very congested country with limited resources in terms of infrastructure, water, and so on and so forth. So for it to accept 100,000 Rohingyas or 50,000 Rohingyas, uh, and a lot of them uh, have been uh, um, made into militants by ISI in Pakistan, is a problem. 
you can't take people from the eastern part, eastern side of India, and settle them in Kashmir, for example, while at the same time you expel Kashmiri pundits in, a, in probably uh, a very large uh, event of ethnic cleansing. So we shouldn't overlook that. But let me summarize all this in one sentence, and that is that the, I think uh, that picture you painted is influenced by leftist uh, media in India. Uh, there are, there's always another side to the coin, and, and we should look at that and give Modi some of the credit for the things that he's done. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to respond. I won't respond at great length. Uh, you're absolutely right. And, and it, there are always two sides to the story that you'll see in the book. Perhaps it's a little bit more nuanced in the book. I do give him credit for, for much of what has been achieved in the last uh, couple of years. I think we will just fundamentally disagree about the Rohingyas and whether a country of 1.3 billion might be able to absorb a few tens of thousands from a humanitarian point of view. But why don't we talk afterwards and get into it? Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. This, this, could, uh, t- this is what Twitter's is for, Ravi. Uh, now, there was someone at the back um, in there, that gentleman there, and then we've got quite a bit of a um, Heathrow landing list happening here. So, uh, Thank you, Adam. Um, you kept on returning to this idea that Modi was enjoyed the, the drama and performance, yeah. and I'd just like to talk about his uh, move to Varanasi. Uh, and his attempt to not only harness the ideological, uh, ideological power there, but also the cosmological power that resides in, in, in the Varanasi area. So could you comment on how successful this move has been? Yeah, I, I don't know about the cosmology, but the, the politics of it, I think, was an extraordinarily clever choice to go to Varanasi. Uh, the amazing election result the BJP got under Modi in 2014 it, it outdid almost every single analyst or every pollster. Uh, nobody expected, I don't think even the BJP expected they'd get anything close to the 282 seats. So anyway, the, the number of seats they got. And, and the, the crucial victory was in Uttar Pradesh. Nobody forecast that in one state the BJP would get 72 of the 80-odd seats. And... That was down to a man called Amit Shah, especially. He's a very, very clever election (coughs) campaigner. And it was down to the fact that Modi could connect very well with the people of Uttar Pradesh, partly by talking about his own... He doesn't talk a lot about caste, but he talks about being an ordinary guy. He's of something called the other backward classes category of of caste. Um, But it was also down to the fact that he chose Varanasi as, as... one of his two constituencies. India's a little bit odd. You can, you can run in more than one constituency at a time. But he, he campaigned from Varanasi, and as a, I went down and followed the campaign somewhat down there. By being in this town and then influencing all the constituencies around it, he really gave his party a big boost in Uttar Pradesh, which in turn gave the party a big boost nationally. So a very, very clever uh, political move. More than the history, although of course it does touch on, on, on the religious side, he also talked about the environment. He talked about cleaning up the River Ganges, and I think that was a really admirable thing to have said as well. He's not going to deliver on it, sadly, because nobody could. The River Ganges will not be cleaned by 2019. 
nor would it be clean by 2029. It's an enormously big environmental problem to solve, but admirable that he highlighted it as something that needed to be done. And I suspect you spent time in Varanasi, so you know how important it is to sort out the Ganges for all the people who go and bathe in it and celebrate it. Well, I don't think everyone would agree that it is the centre. I mean, I think if you live in that bit of Uttar Pradesh, you think it's a wonderfully important place. But if you're from southern India, you might reckon that Hampi or that some other part is wonderful. If you're from, you know, I think there's a mistake as outsiders to somehow privilege one bit of India is more important than anything else. If you, I begin the book travelling around the northeast of India, which almost never gets a mention by anyone when we talk about the continent. Um, it's an amazingly diverse place. I, I don't think of it as a country, it's a continent, really, and, and I'm more struck by the diversity than by any sort of consistency of the place. All right, next one, next cab on the rank is at the, the front, the, the gentleman here, and then we'll come back to you. So. Thank you, and thanks, Adam. Very, uh, very interesting. Um, just a question about um, regional security in East Asia especially. Um, I've heard it said that in China the leadership uh, talks often about a century of humiliation and they see it natural that eventually China would return to this role of leadership within Asia. Um, I wondered from India's perspective, does the Indian leadership and India as a country, including the people, do they see themselves as having a role in, in Asia broadly or East Asia? So if there were conflicts, would it be simply the decision of Asia to think about their security vis-a-vis just them and China, or might they be more inclined to be more involved for the balance of all of Asia generally? Yeah, I think historically India has not really thought of itself as part of Asia. I think it's often defined itself in reference to to Britain, perhaps, or more recently to the United States. It's often looked uh, west. (coughs) Uh, Where do rich and powerful Indians go on their holidays? They tend to go to London where do they send their kids? They send, ten- send their kids to school in America or maybe Australia. Trobe University. La Trobe University, obviously. <laughs> uh, the best ones, you know. Um, so I think if you look at cultural influences on India, they, of course, they have a fantastic film industry themselves, but they basically watch American and, and you know, like we all do, heavily influenced by, by the West. On the other hand, from a geopolitical point of view, I think India has understood that since the trade deal with ASEAN, for example, or since the concern about China has come up over the years, it makes very good sense to have stronger relationships with other countries in Asia, and the most obvious ones to go for are the democracies, Australia. Uh, This predates Modi, of course. Manmohan Singh did it in his quiet way. Uh, Very close relationship with Japan. In Japan's just about to build India's first high-speed train service. Um, close and increasingly close relationship with Australia, for example, over uranium, but also just generally there's a, there's a warming of the relations. Um, if you look across Asia, by and large, India makes friends where it can with other democracies plus Vietnam. Why Vietnam? Well, Vietnam is kind of India's version of Pakistan. You know, if, if China uses Pakistan to annoy India, India hopes to use Vietnam to annoy China. So, and, and even Mongolia, this is Modi's sort of little kudu, uh, coup de grace. He, he flew into Mongolia, the first Indian leader to go to Mongolia a couple of years ago, presumably some sort of message to China saying, you know, we can mess about in your region if you want to mess about in ours. Um, that said, India is, going back to the potential point, India's not there yet. 
Now, India has to beef up its capacity in its immediate region. It has to be a, a more popular regional hegemon and a more capable power. It has the ability to deploy lots of UN peacekeepers. It has built and deployed an aircraft carrier. You know, it's got nuclear weapons. It can send things to Mars. So it's getting there, but it's not really a really heavyweight military power yet. So I think it'd be premature to think that India would, would play a very big role tomorrow if something happened in the South China Sea. The one place I went to where I slightly thought again about that was I went to the Andaman Islands. I'm proud to say I was the first economist journalist to get to the Andaman Islands. And I went there to look at the... It's the only part of India where you have a tri-service deployment. So the Navy, the Air Force, and the Army are all together. And what, is the, what are the Andaman Islands? They're basically a jumping-off point for India's military to be able, perhaps one day, to choke off the, uh, the Malacca Strait and perhaps, therefore, to threaten China's trade. So in the long run, and they're building new runways and capacity there, so in the long run, India will have more military power to, to project to the east, but I'd say give it a while yet before they're there. Yeah, the, 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 the horizon's expanding, but it's yeah, been but doing it's... so slowly. Um, just there in the... Thank you. Uh, th- thanks for your talk and the book I'll look forward to reading. Thank you. Um, I wondered what your take is on Modi's closeness to the barons of industry, uh, Big Coal, Adani, and s- sometimes related and fairly undemocratic, the approach to some more political NGOs that have spoken out politically mm. and the charitable sector around those issues. So I just wondered, not necessarily related, they can be two separate issues. I mean, politics and business in India have always been very closely entwined, and and it's not a new thing to have a political party that has favourites or has uh, business people they're close to. I mean, clearly the old Congress party had industrialists and tycoons that it was extraordinarily close to, to the point of being able to influence policy and decide who could be ministers of certain ministries and so on. So there's a very high degree of corruption that that holds India back and it's not new to see politicians and businesses very closely together. To some extent, Modi has distanced himself, at least publicly, from some business people. But you mentioned one, you mentioned Adani, and he and Modi have a long history going back to Gujarat and Adani has done well in Gujarat over the years. The accusation that Congress made was that Adani got very cheap land uh, that uh, allowed his business empire to grow very easily. Uh, I know Adani has interest in Australia with, with coal and so on. Um, it's interesting to know that Modi flew around in the election campaign in a jet provided by Adani. So they are close, and there are good questions to ask about whether that relationship is, is in some ways too close and, and whether he's getting favours. Um, but I just go back to the first point. That's not new. I'm, I'm probably not new in any part of the world, but the closeness of, of industrialists and politicians is, at least since the time that Nehru left office, has, has been a, a, the case. I think Nehru didn't really understand business, didn't like business people very much. He, he thought they were not... Quite, quite right to be influencing policy so much. But in the years since, the, the regime that Indira Gandhi built up, for example, to be a successful business person, you had to get permits, you had to get permission from the government to do certain things such as grow. And that meant having good, strong political ties. Often rich people, rich on the back of being businesses, 
either become politicians or create politicians in order to further their business interests. So it's utterly impossible to separate out business and politics, I think. And of course, as in many countries, how are political parties funded? They're not really funded by small donations in India. They're not funded by the state very much. They're funded by donations from, from business. So the, biz- the businesses are doing it for, for something, and they're doing it for the payoff they get later. So I, I agree that it's something to worry about, but I just don't agree that it's anything particularly new. All right, there's, a, I think, the gentleman in the middle in the black shirt. So, someone, someone who's next to Ian, someone who's very near Ian is on my list. As the, as someone put their hand up fairly early on, but if not... They've if gone. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, maybe it's not... You sure it may not be black, but it looks like it's black from here. And it's Melbourne, so I'm assuming it's black. It's a name. Um, you mentioned, you touched on how Gujarat had a sort of geographic advantage and the southern states like Kerala and Tamanadu have a geographic uh, advantage as yeah. well. Um, you've, your main population centres in Uttar Pradesh and Bihar are both landlocked states with 300 million people. Yeah. Uh, is that a, going to be a perpetual problem for India uh, if you look at the inevitable comparison with China, they've got a far more coastal-based yeah. population and their manufacturing has been able to take advantage of that. Yeah. So how, what kind of industries, I guess, could flourish in Uttar Pradesh and Bihar that could take advantage of that population? Yeah. <clears throat> um, it, it's a difficult one. I think geography really does matter and there's a reason why those coastal <coughs> parts of India do better. Um, it's partly historic because they're on the coast. They've got a remarkably long history of trading with other parts of the world, and there are benefits to having that history so that we can look back at how ancient Rome was trading with India and beautiful statues were brought from India, and obviously gold and, and silver went back to India later on. There's a long history of a, a trade relationship that India's had with the world, and typically that's trade from the coastal areas. Um, much harder for the Uttar Pradeshes and Bihars to, to flourish, Two answers, I guess. One is that you build better infrastructure, and that's that's something that Modi is trying to do now. We're, we're seeing the creation of uh, one new train freight link from Mumbai to Delhi that comes up through Gujarat and, and, and links the coast to that part of the centre, and another sort of east to west that goes across from Delhi and, and across through Uttar Pradesh towards West Bengal. Uh, again, a, a train line. So once the roads are improved and the rail improves, you know, the fact you're landlocked still matters, but it will, it will be somewhat less of a disaster to be landlocked. It's also worth bearing in mind that the infrastructure isn't always great on the coast either. I once interviewed the head of Peugeot, no, Renault, the head of Renault in Tamil Nadu, whose plant is only 12 kilometres from the harbour. And he said it was just a nightmare to get that 12 kilometres covered. <laughs> so it's not always the case that just because you're near the coast, you, you've got no problems. The second answer is that I think, despite the Make in India campaign that Modi has to, to build up manufacturing in India, I think India would be smart not to bet too much on manufacturing as the only future for the country, because certain types of manufacturing will flourish the car industry will do well because Indians as consumers will want a lot of cars and you can tell manufacturers come and make here in order to sell here. And while, while you're making big volumes here, you can export as well. So the car industry will do okay. There'll be some forms of manufacturing that can really take off in India. 
<clears throat> but I don't think that India will succeed in the way that, say, China succeeded at the low-end, low-skilled mass manufacturing of plastic buckets or whatever. I just don't think in or clothing, textiles, India's textile industry has just not flourished in the way that Bangladesh has been able to make it work. And so where will India then have more of an advantage? I think it's in tourism, it's in the service industry, it's in education, it's in sort of in more intangible things where perhaps being landlocked matters less. So if you have great universities or you have wonderful tourists like, like Varanasi, um, again, you need infrastructure because tourists need to have decent roads and everything, but you can maybe overcome some of the traditional problems of geography. But you're right. I mean, maybe the ultimate answer for Uttar Pradesh and Bihar is that the people, they move, and they move to the southern part of India where there's greater wealth, and the great advantage of being one country is that you can move. So. And that's in stark contrast to China at the moment, yeah. which has very strict internal mobility controls. Um, the gentleman there has been waiting. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Nick Adam. Uh, really interesting discussion. Um, thank you. Just two questions. I guess I'd um, be interested to know what you would sort of highlight as, say, three successful policy initiatives that Modi's introduced in his time, sort of three or four years, because I, I found the tone maybe quite critical and, and, and maybe yeah. a bit negative. Tone, so maybe, my tone was critical. Well, yeah. maybe that's just what I heard. Yeah. I, I, sure. I don't quite know. So it would be interesting to sort of see the, the other side of the coin. Yeah. And then I guess the second question, how's the f foreign investment and sort of external environment, what are they saying about India? Are they sitting and saying, you know what, we're going to sit tight, watch how this plays out and wait to commit to capital? Or, or is capital flowing into India mm. to support a, a positive impact that Modi's yeah. having? Thanks. No, thank you. I mean, I don't mean to be unremittingly negative. I mean, I, I do think there's all sorts of potential. Um, on the second point, on, on foreign investment, it has flowed in enormously uh, under Modi. The first 18 months, especially, I think it uh, there were record flows of foreign investment. I think a lot of it's gone into the stock market, but there's also just direct investment that has gone into uh, industries. There's great appetite to invest when the time comes in the defense industry. One of the things that I've welcomed that the new government did was to lift the caps on foreign investment in two or three different industries, including defence, insurance. Um, it's become somewhat more welcoming to forms of, of investment in retail that used to be a big problem. So um, outsiders are possibly more excited than insiders about the potential for India. So the increase in foreign investment is very, very clear. Domestic investment, which is actually a much bigger deal... Um, has not responded in that way. And we can talk about why that is. It's partly to do with problems within India's banks, the, the non-performing assets in the state-run banks. Uh, there are anxieties about the anti-corruption measures that, while very, very welcome, actually cause some difficulties for businesses that have certain ways of behaving uh, there are some anxieties, for example, about retrospective tax, which is something that the BJP said it would get rid of and then hasn't got rid of. So there are reasons why the domestic investors are perhaps more hesitant than the foreign ones. I think foreign ones also came to India because there weren't that many great other choices out there, and India looked much more hopeful. Whereas for domestic investors, they maybe wanted to hedge their bets and look for possibilities outside. To go to your first question, there have been positive things that have happened under Modi and, and uh, should, should give him credit for, for several of those. I think the GST is very welcome. The GST is the goods and services tax, 
which sounds very dull and boring, but basically it creates a single market for India. It allows much freer trade between the different states, so you don't have the difficulty of producing something in one state and then it reaches the state border and you can't get it over without paying masses of tax or dealing with bureaucracy and bribes and so on. And by opening up India as a single market, just as the European Union did 20 years ago, <coughs> you create the chance for a lot more overall growth. So I think that's very, very welcome. Since I'm an annoying journalist who's always got something to grumble about, I complain about the way they've done GST, but I very much welcome the fact they've done GST. Foreign policy, I'm generally very positive. I think he's done, done a really good job in foreign policy. Um, <coughs> And yeah, there's I, nothing else comes to mind right now. But there are other things that I would, you know, give him. Give him. Uh, he's opened. He's overseen the opening of two hundred million bank accounts, which financial inclusion will be an extraordinarily important thing for improving welfare. And using this system called the Aadhaar, the biometric scheme, which was launched by the previous government, but is now it's a bit Orwellian. But it's now enrolled one billion Indians who've had their biometric data, their irises scanned, and their fingerprints taken so that you can now have your digital identity, which in turn allows you to have a bank account, access to your welfare, lets you shift welfare away from rations, from goods in kind, to cash welfare or digital cash welfare. That allows India to have a much more efficient welfare state and capable state. That's fantastic. I think that's absolutely wonderful. So I'd, I'd sort of praise him for that as well. Some of these ideas were ideas that were floated before and were blocked by the BJP when they were in opposition, but to their credit, they now support them. So I think that's, that's fantastic. I think we've got one last one, Andrew. The... Hi, uh, thank you, Adam, for your speech. And uh, when you talk about uncomfortable questions, now there is one uncomfortable question I have for you as well. It... <laughs> so uh, when you talk about all, all the incidents, Gauri Lankesh, mob lynching and everything, what, what has happened is that it, it's all the liberal left narrative that they wanted to uh, tell to people has come out in media, but the other side has not come out. For example, you talked about Modi being uh, in, the, in the state of Gujarat, ruling Gujarat when 2002 happened. But for Gauri Lankesh, she's from Karnataka, which is ruled by Congress. So it should be, it should be uh, more focused on uh, Congress rather than Modi. And some of her last tweets also said that we shouldn't be fighting within ourselves. Right, which, which again, we are very missed by the media. So uh, the problem is that people are fed up of the liberal left narrative, and that's why they're liking Modi. Uh, how do you respond to that? Uh, I think you're wrong. I, I don't think that uh, she was... Uh, I, I just disagree with you, basically. But I think the, the media is rather soft on, on the government in India. There's self-censorship. There are not... I think enough people speaking out and saying what they believe about these things. We, we clearly disagree. Um, uh, the implication that she, because she sent some tweets saying people should be nice to each other in the way they talk to each other within her movements and so on does not imply that she was murdered by one of her colleagues. I think it's, it's actually an outrageous thing to suggest that, if that's what you... Maybe you weren't suggesting that, but if you were, that would be outrageous. <laughs> no, but then the um, tweets, if PM following Twitter handles that, that say bad things about it. So how do you link Hindu nationalism to uh, murder of Gauri Lankesh? I don't know who murdered her. I do know that she was a campaigner against extremism, and she was killed. She was the fourth person who had this rationalist approach, who was against superstition, against uh, caste extremism, against Hindu extremism, and has been murdered in India. I'm not blaming Modi. At least two of those were killed before Modi was prime minister. Um, but I'm just saying 
those who explain their views in a rather liberal way that I agree with are more worried about speaking out now than they used to be. And that is an unhealthy thing from my point of view. You might disagree. You might think it's actually fine. But I personally think that that's not good. So. Yeah, we can debate all for right. long. I, but I, I think we'll, we'll unfortunately have to wrap this up. Um, before we finish, firstly, um, for those of you who, who have not yet purchased the book, there are still more copies that can be bought out there uh, in the foyer. More importantly, Adam will be available to sign your book if you wish um, for, for about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, so, at, at, or any other piece of uh, equipment you may have, books, flyers, <laughs> tickets, shirts, backs, whatever it might be. Um, before we finish, I'd like to uh, thank a, a, a few people and organisations for making tonight possible. Um, uh, Craig Jeffrey, uh, Cog and Co. at the Australia India, Australia India Institute. I'm on the board and I can't even say the name. Um, I'd particularly like to thank the Griffith Asia Institute. Adam is flying to Brisbane tomorrow to, to do this all over again uh, and they've ge very generously helped support Adam's visit. Um, the staff here at the State Library of Victoria are always fantastic. We do a lot of work here and always it's always um, extraordinarily easy and they're extraordinarily professional. And finally, my team at La Trobe Asia who are um, a, a picture of professionalism. Um, and finally, thank you all for coming on a wet, miserable Melbourne Tuesday night. Um, and one last product placement. If you like Tuesday nights at the State Library of Victoria, we are in fact here again next week talking about China uh, and China's soft power influence in Australia. But please join me in thanking Adam Roberts for a fantastic conversation. Thank you.